dark would fell before me and all the paths were overgrown when the priests of pride say there is no other way I till the sorrows of stone I did not believe because I could not see though you came to me in the night when the dawn seemed forever lost You showed me your love in the light of the stars Cast your eyes on the ocean Cast your soul to the sea When the dark night seems endless Please remember A story is true, a story is untrue. A story is a work of transformative fiction. As time goes on, it matters less and less. Hello, I'm Kendra Classic, and welcome to Reading Between the Lines, a podcast by fandom nerds for fandom nerds. This is our very first baby episode. I say baby, but this puppy is gargantuan. Tuck in with snacks and your beverage of choice, because this story is my white whale. But first, some context. This podcast is all about fan fiction, the much maligned art form that, much to the chagrin of a certain author I like to poke with a pointy stick, nevertheless brings many people cathartic levels of joy, not just in the reading of it, but in the creation of it as well. To be truly transparent about it, I used to be one of those who maligned it. Oh, it's derivative. It's unoriginal. Anybody can do it. So, a few things. Number one, nearly all work is derivative. Shakespeare was derivative. Wide Sargasso Sea is highbrow, culturally accepted Jane Eyre fan fiction. Black Sails is Treasure Island pre-canon fan fiction. Wicked and everything else Gregory Maguire ever wrote is fan fiction. I could go on and on, but when you break it down, what people are actually maligning is unpublished fan fiction, the stuff you've been told it's not cool to read. Number two, have you ever actually read a really good modern AU? Nobody can accuse the best of these works of truly being unoriginal. And to be fair, most of what we consider genre fiction is based on a mad lib variation of some recycled plot or trope, so let's not throw stones. And as for the belief that anyone can do it, well, I've read plenty that tells me that's not the case. What's special about Black Sails fan fiction is just how intelligent and well-read this fandom is as a whole. And that, of course, is sprinkled into the secret sauce that makes these stories so entrancing. That brings us to this story, A Vulgar Holy Thing, by someone who, at the point that I read it, I only knew as a screen name, Lupus Maris. His real name is James, and I'll be chatting with him during the second half of the episode. I read it in my first emotional flailing after finishing Black Sails for the first time, and it took my broken heart and knit the pieces back together again. So here it is, my white whale and 11 months in the making. A Vulgar Holy Thing 
by Lupus Maris. Summary. A quiet night in harbor leaves Silver brooding and pensive. So much had changed since he'd found himself with the damned page, he'd hardly be recognizable to the boy he was then. He'd relearned his body, relearned his place in the world after Charleston. But now, despite his best efforts, Flint was causing him to relearn it all over again. Notes for Forbidden Archives on Tumblr and my submission for the 2019 Black Sales Gift Exchange, obviously. This is the first canon fic I've ever written for this fandom, which is really saying something. Though what it's saying, I'm not entirely sure. There will be a chapter two in the next couple of days, and the rating will change accordingly. But this has managed to stay true to my brand. John Silver is a good boy who deserves all the love in the world, namely, from a cranky old ginger. Despite his constant insistence that he hated the sea, hated the ships, hated the men who sailed them, and had at one point in his life wanted nothing more than to be rid of it all, Silver would admit, to the near silence of the evening, that he had grown to love the peace of a ship in the setting sun. He had grown to find the sound of the creaking wood and the gentle rise and fall of the hull beneath his feet a comfort. He had begun to listen for the faint breeze dancing amongst the bound sails, as one might for the call of a friend. The low rumble of the water as currents shifted beneath the ship, amongst the relative silence of the deck, had become something akin to spiritual. Something about it, when it all came together, offered him a moment of peace. Not true peace, but something to hold on to all the same. Tonight was different, however as most nights in harbor were. The gentle lullaby of the ship was accompanied by the ambient sounds of merriment and human chaos, echoing out from the docks and winding streets of the port. Tortuga had always been a rowdy, wild place, a place Silver had often let himself get lost in, once his purse was well and truly secured. Down amongst the cobbled sandy streets, the noise was a constant hum of voices and jigs, of shouting and singing, of metal hissing against metal as insults were aired in taverns and alleys. Now, though, as a spectator, and not one of the fools caught in the town's chaos, it reminded Silver of the few times he'd watched a hanging, or when the nameless towns he had wandered through had held festivals, and he would sit up the hill or in the window of his room at the inn and watch the world go by on the other side of some unseen glass. Silver hummed low as his leg ached, the ship rising beneath him on a passing current and reminding him of his physical form, as if he ever truly needed reminding. Now the glass, he reasoned, as he stood at the rail of the ship, watching the lantern lights flicker in the twilight, was between the ship and the shore. The ship was his domain, his point of safety for however short a time he retained his position. The shore, in turn, was wilderness, unwelcoming to people like him, a place that, with each passing day, he understood less and less. He had never truly fit amongst the port towns and the militias, amongst the taverns and the drunkards and the fishwives. But it was a strange thing to not only know it himself, but for the inhabitants of the shore to know it too. A crippled thief was not welcome, just as an able-bodied thief was not, and now he could see it in their faces. It would almost be comical. Silver's thoughts were halted by new sounds, disrupting the quiet ambiance of the ship, the heavy thunk of wood against wood, the hissing of disturbed water. 
He was alone on deck, save for the few members of the skeleton crew with no real desire to go ashore. Most of the men had been grateful for a few days' leave on the island, taking the time it took to replenish their stores and sell what goods they had acquired along the way from Maroon Island to blow off some steam. Silver knew most had found their way to the brothels and alehouses as soon as their feet hit the sand. Not that he could fault them. Ships were lonely, especially if you didn't prefer the company of a fellow sailor. But a few, Joji among them, had taken their positions around the ship to keep watch, leaving Silver to his thoughts. He leaned over the rail to see one of the longboats below, newly returned from the docks with a pair of rucksacks being ready to haul aboard. No doubt the two crewmen tying the sacks to the line were only following orders given by Flint and were anxious to rejoin their brothers in their merrymaking. Silver moved to where the line was draped over the rail and waved down. "'Anything good?' he called, taking the rope in hand and hauling it up. One of the crewmen, duly, he thought, in the dim light, shrugged, while the other lifted the sacks to make them easier to haul up. Something for Flint, then. Silver had been right. The captain had locked himself away the moment the ship had emptied, and Silver had left him to it. No doubt the man was catching up on some much-needed rest, now that he was more or less alone. Really, Silver should have tried to do the same. But sleep did not come easily anymore. Silver gritted his teeth and braced his foot, pulling at the ropes as best he could with his weight unbalanced. He could only put so much pressure on the peg after all. He could see Joji making his way over out of the corner of his eye, the faint clink of his swords the only sound the man ever made. But before Joji reached him, Silver felt a large warm hand at the small of his back, accompanied by a soft sound of amusement. If you go overboard, I'm leaving you to the fishes, Flint said, reaching around him to grab the line, the hand on Silver's back keeping him steady. Silver felt a laugh bubble out of him like sea foam, leaning into Flint for a bit of support as they heaved together, and the sacks cleared the railing. I'd like to see how long you'd last then. Wouldn't even clear the harbor before you joined me, I reckon. Oh, that's cutting, Mr. Quartermaster. Flint kept his hand on Silver's back for a moment, until he seemed confident that Silver had his footing. Then he crouched down to gather up the sacks before waving down to the longboat to send it back to shore. Once his hand was gone, Silver felt a tremor crawl up his spine at the lingering warmth that seeped through his shirt. It wasn't the touch itself that left him off kilter. No, Flint's touch was fast becoming familiar, even if the first of them had not been particularly friendly. It had gone from threatening and violent to gentle, in a way Silver had never known before. Soft, in a way he hadn't thought a man like Flint capable. When Silver let himself think on it, which wasn't often for fear of letting the thoughts run away with him, Flint touched him far more than a man really should in his experience. But then, his experience was not a good one, nor one that should be used as a reference by any means. A hand at his elbow, fingers along his shoulder, a warm palm at the small of his back, between his shoulder blades. Flint's thigh pressed against his as they sat around the fire at camp, fingers brushing his along the guide ropes that stretched across the deck. Little harmless things, really, but singular, all the same. Silver started when Flint touched his arm, shaken once more from his thoughts. Help me with these, then, if you're going to just stand there, Flint said, tossing one of the bags at him. 
Silver managed to catch it in time, keeping his balance on his peg. It was heavier than he expected, and he knew the sound of glass bottles when he heard it. "'Gone shopping, Captain. Whatever could a man like you be in need of?' Silver teased, following Flint towards the stairs. He cast one last look at the hazy port, their long boat a black scar on the dark waters, and willed away the thoughts in his head, which was easier said than done, with the faint warmth of Flint's hand still lingering along his bicep. "'Curiosity killed the cat, did it not?' Flint asked over his shoulder, and Silver felt a thrill at the telltale crinkling at the corner of his eye that meant he'd earned a smile from his captain." Your witticisms have gotten weaker with age, I think. That earned him a soft, sharp, wry laugh as Flint slipped below, and Silver felt warm from the tips of his ears down to all five toes. No, it wasn't the touch itself that always left Silver buzzing with energy he didn't understand. It was the change in his body that came with each one. See, once he'd finally come to terms with the fact he'd lost his leg, he had begun the slow and rather miserable process of relearning his body with its missing pieces and gnarled scars. Silver had come to terms with the fact that pain was now a constant and almost a comfort. It meant he was alive. He had learned that his body still didn't respond to the touch of others, and to his own touch less than before. He learned and accepted that his leg would be numb at times and burning at others, feeling nothing or everything in equal measure. His body no longer moved as confidently. He was no longer as quick and certainly not silent. His shoulder always hurt when he used the crutch and his hips when he used the peg. There was no comfortable position for him to sleep in, if the nightmares allowed him to sleep. He'd become familiar with how his body felt, now that it had endured so much. It wasn't particularly pleasant, but he understood it now, in the months after Charleston. But when Flint touched him, even in so simple and innocent a way as he often did, it left Silver reeling and desperate to try and understand why his body felt so different in those moments. Silver ducked his head as he descended into the hull, Flint a few strides ahead and already at his cabin door, lighting the lamps as he went. It bathed the corridor in warm, hazy light, casting mischievous shadows across the wood. When Flint touched him, it felt like a spark. The heat of a candle or a small fire, just close enough to warm deep, but with the risk of burning all the same. It was a sharp contrast to the unshakable chill in his bones. His muscles would feel different under Flint's hand, looser at times, wound even tighter at others. His skin prickled and flushed ever so slightly, and Silver always feared Flint might notice. He'd be damned if he knew what it all meant. It was just yet another way Flint was upending his already volatile world. "'I have expected you to go ashore with the men,' Flint said, as Silver closed the cabin door behind him. "'Or did Billy take up the mantle of Nanny?' "'Tortuga has never done a man good, a cripple even less so.' Silver passed him the sack he was carrying and made his way over to the windows. The curved glass gave the town a faraway quality, the glittering lights of the shops and homes like stars. There's pockets to pick, wages to win, drunkards to argue with, prostitutes to charm, Flint said mildly, unpacking the first of the two sacks. Enjoying the company of your devoted men? Now you're mocking me, 
The low hum Silver got in reply warmed him, as the laughter had. Never, Mr. Silver. I've never been fond of Tortuga myself, so I find your choice to stay aboard rather sensible, though we will both have to go ashore in the morning to oversee our cargo, I'm afraid. We can handle a hungover Tortuga, I think, between the two of us, Silver said with a shrug, listening as Flint finished emptying the bags onto his desk, the thunk of full glass bottles against the wood, a familiar sound. What are you up to, Captain? Wanting a few comforts does not make a man up to something, Flint replied. Silver turned with a roll of his eyes. Flint had shed his coat and was hanging it in its proper place by the door. Silver took the moment, with Flint's back to him and attention elsewhere, to simply look his fill. It had been a few comfortable weeks since they'd begun their alliance with the Maroons, since Silver's infection had finally healed properly and Flint no longer looked like a man becalmed. He'd filled out again, more so than before even if Silver was to wonder. The strength of his body was visible now, in the soft swell of his chest and the breadth of his shoulders. He'd always been bigger than Silver, a fact Silver had become intimately aware of each time Flint had him pressed up against a wall, threatening him about something or another, their bodies flush. But now it was impossible to miss. And much like those moments when Flint touched him, the quiet fleeting moments in which Silver could simply admire him in turn, left his skin prickling with a foreign feeling. He had admired men, and some women before, but it had nearly always been for merely aesthetic reasons. The curve of their spine, the high arch of their cheekbones, the bright color of their eyes, the softness of their hair. He had admired Billy's arms as they worked, Muldoon's clever and quick hands on a pistol, Max's dark curls as they draped over her thin shoulders. He had admired them all in his own quiet way, but there had been no rise in him, nothing that made him concerned. Not till Flint, of course. Always Flint, he thought to himself. Damn the man and his ability to confound everything he came into contact with. As Flint turned, rolling his shoulders with a sigh, Silver dropped his gaze, pretending to be fascinated with the collection of goods that covered the normally immaculate desk. In a moment, he was mildly fascinated. Four bottles of fine, expensive wine, if Silver had to guess a shorter stout bottle with French on the label, two loaves of freshly baked bread, cheese from the market, salted meats from the butcher, olives and fruit that had somehow survived their voyage from abroad, two bottles of salve, a few bars of soap that Silver could smell without even unwrapping them, lavender, he thought distantly. It was an expensive haul, a collection of comforts he hadn't known in years, and never properly a collection of comforts he never quite imagined his captain wanting either. Surprised? Flint asked. And Silver tracked his steps across the cabin, glancing up as Flint rounded the desk, standing opposite him with a small, shy, mischievous smile. He'd never seen quite such a smile on him before. It was charming. Mildly. I have expected books. Silver looked up with a teasing smile of his own. Not the comforts of a rich man. Flynn's smile grew for a moment, before settling into the passive, amused expression he often wore when they were alone. I don't particularly entrust my library to men who can barely read, nor do I expect much from Tortuga. But there is one merchant I plan to visit tomorrow, in hopes of finding a volume or two. As for this, 
What is all this even? A taste of a life long forgotten, perhaps. A whim. Flint shrugged. But there was a look in his eye that had questions ripe on Silver's tongue. He knew better than to ask, and the haunted look was gone in seconds. Have you eaten? No. Haven't been hungry. Too much to do. Flint tisked in disappointment. Silver. The disappointment cut more than Silver liked, and he felt himself bristle. Don't be a hypocrite. You've not eaten since breakfast. At least I ate breakfast. Think Billy doesn't tell me when you forgo a meal. Flint produced two glasses from a drawer in his desk, Silver watching his hands. Well, I suppose a good bosun is always a bit of a rat. Flint chuckled. Come then, and join me. Lend me your company a while. They were hardly ever apart, really. Where one went, the other inevitably followed. If one was summoned, both answered, as if it had always been that way. But it was still a somewhat rare thing for Flint to outright ask for his company, if ship's business wasn't at hand. Silver had given up thinking it strange. It was a far better situation than being at odds. And they'd found a way to a friendship of sorts, in the process. Or so he liked to think. He didn't really know how Flint felt on the matter. But they had sat opposite each other besides a lantern in the dark forest, with a cache of blood-soaked gold freshly buried. And Flint had bared his throat to him. And from that night, something had shifted, deep, deep down in the fissures of the earth, Silver thought. Something that now meant Flint wanted his company. The mild surprise and vague skepticism must have shown on his face. Flint's smile grew crooked, teasing, and he braced himself on his hands, leaning over the desk. Don't tell me our king is afraid of a bit of finery, a bit of polite conversation, he asked in a low, intimate voice. The empty tile, paired with the warm timbre of his voice, left a funny feeling in Silver's chest. There was still space between them, half the desk and the chair that Silver stood behind, but it was close enough that he could see Flint's eyelashes, see the freckles that dusted his nose, the flecks of gray in his green eyes. It would have been easy to decline and leave Flint to his ghosts, to retreat back to the quiet of the ship and converse with his own demons until sleep came. But he was lonely. He was tired. And it was so much easier to meet his captain halfway. Nothing about you is polite, Silver replied, pulling out the chair and settling into it. Flint huffed in amusement and reached for one of the wine bottles, studying the label before pouring them each a drink. Silver let out a sigh and stretched his legs out in front of him in a careless sprawl, grateful to be off his feet. He looked up at Flint with a tired smile when he was offered a glass. And what are we drinking, Captain? he asked. Flint seemed to mull it over a moment, staring down at his wine before looking up at Silver and raising his glass. To us. Silver raised an eyebrow. To us? And what of a sheer dumb luck and utter madness got us this far? It was said so frankly, and with enough bewilderment, that Silver was laughing before he could stop himself. Flint was watching him, eyes soft and crinkled at the corners, quiet laughter on his own lips, with something akin to fondness in his features, partnered with genuine amusement. 
It was a lovely sight to see on a man so war-torn. Silver nodded, sitting forward so he could knock his glass against Flint's. To us and our rare breed of madness. The clink of glass echoed in the cabin as they drank, emptying their glasses and sharing another laugh as Flint refilled them before settling in his chair. To think, Silver said, watching as Flint busied himself with the food, tearing the first loaf of bread into pieces for them to share, filling a tin plate with olives and fruit before reaching to do the same with the meat and cheese. To think this is only the second time you and I have shared a drink. Bullshit. We've shared plenty of drinks, Flint scoffed. A glass of rum with the men doesn't count, nor do meals in the galley or in camp, Silver added before Flint could interrupt. You've only once sat me down to share a drink, aside from this. Most would say that's a bad sign. Bad luck, even. I think the entirety of our relationship would be considered bad luck in the eyes of sensible men, Silver. Even so, you really ought to give our relationship a bit more consideration, Silver continued, not missing the way Flint's lips twitched as he teased him. I mean, consider the ramifications of it, this being the only time you've invited me to your cabin for, what was it you said? Polite conversation, despite all our time together? If the men were to find out. The same men who are already convinced we share a soul like some sort of ancient god, Flint asked, placing the plates of food between them and sitting back. We are talking about those same men, yes? I'm sorry, are you captaining another crew on the side in your ample free time? Flint rolled his eyes, popping an olive into his mouth and reaching for his wine. Now I remember why I've never asked you to dine with me. You are incapable of shutting that mouth of yours. There was a hint of a smile around the rim of his wine glass, a glint in his eyes, the ghost of color in his freckled cheeks, and Silver, not for the first time, felt himself grieving. Grieving for the fact that they were who they were, not merely strangers meeting in a tavern or old friends sitting in the kitchen without a war waiting on the horizon. Oh, what things they could have been to each other, he wondered. What ways he could have coaxed that smile from Flint if things had been different. Secretly, I think you like my mouth, Silver replied flippantly, instead of letting all his wistful thoughts slip free. He didn't miss the way Flint's smile seemed to sharpen as he sipped his wine, or how his eyes flicked down, then quickly back to hold Silver's gaze again. Let us add it to the ever-growing list of secrets we share, then, Flint said. Now eat, for fuck's sake. Can't have you wasting away on me all over again. Silver laughed weakly and did as he was told. He couldn't remember the last time he had laughed so much around someone, even such little bursts of tired laughter. It was part of the shift in their dynamic, of course, but one he hadn't expected. He had expected the soft sense of humor from Flint about as much as he'd expect him capable of a soft touch. I thought we were meant to make polite conversation, Captain, Silver said, examining a piece of cheese with a quizzical eye. Well, we could always talk ship's business. God, no. Can't ruin a fine spread such as this with something as common as ship's business, Silver said with an air of disgust and Flint outright laughed. Right then, what shall we talk about, Mr. Silver? What will suit your appetite? Will you tell me? Silver asked after a moment, in between sips of wine and bits of food, about the first time you had fineries such as these. Flint blinked. I can't imagine that actually interests you. 
Maybe not, but it'll be entertainment all the same. I must admit it's something of a delight to see the most feared pirate of the New World being critical of his wine selection. Oh, Silver was enjoying this new facet of their relationship. Being able to tease in private to make Flint smile his little smiles. He watched as Flint's ears turned red at the tips, a little detail he'd never noticed before, and he was fascinated. Well, to be honest, it wasn't until... It wasn't until I was grown that I ever had them, Flint said, eventually shrugging. I was poor as a child, orphaned young like most, and once in the Navy, it was a barren, simplistic life. The high officers, the captains, the sea lords, they all lived fine lives on land, but the rest of us, not so different than this. Flint sat forward and refilled his glass of wine, topping off Silver's before settling back in his chair, a distant look in his eye, a look Silver knew well. Tell me, Silver asked again gently, and after a moment, Flint did. As they ate, not sparing a thought for the crew ashore or the passing minutes, Flint told him about the early years in the Navy, about his low station in life, how it set him up for an unfavorable career, how his shipmates had been against him from the start, taking whatever chances they were given to remind him of his place, about the miserable rations and the long hours, about the catanine and canings that awaited delinquents. And yes, he added when he saw the question in Silver's eyes, a time or two, he had been the delinquent. They finished the first bottle, and after a glass or two of water, Flint opened the second. This was heavier, a dry, bloody red Spanish wine, the kind Silver had grown up with. He hummed at the first familiar taste, and listened attentively as Flint told him about his examinations, about the thrill that had come with being called a lieutenant for the first time, and how hollow it all felt. It didn't matter what title he held— no one cared. All they saw was a red-headed Celtic son of a ship's carpenter from Padstow who had no right to their world. Silver listened, enraptured, and maybe that was simply because of the sound of Flint's voice, like some kind of lethal siren beneath the waves, as he was told about the first voyages to Nassau, to the shores of the colonies, to the continent. It was like listening to the old sailors in taverns when he had been a boy, Silver thought. As Flint spoke with his hands, telling him about the first time he had taken command of the ship after the captain had been wounded, how terrified he had been. If anyone could make a man fall in love with the sea, and with infinitely more, it was Flint, Silver reasoned. He spoke of the waves like a sailor spoke of the home left waiting on the shore, wistful and wanting. The first time he had had fine wine, dinner with Thomas Hamilton, of course, Sure, he'd had nice enough wine when he dined with his admiral, and at whatever functions the sea lords had invited the lowly officers to. But Thomas, being Thomas, had served wine splinted never in his life heard of, alongside dishes and puddings from the continent. What had been intended as a simple meeting at the Hamilton House to review their work schedule and expectations had dissolved rather quickly into a full dinner service before he could protest. And you had no idea even then the kind of man you were dealing with? Silver asked. The plates sat mostly empty between them, the second bottle of wine half gone, the rest of the food set aside for later. Flint was reclined in his chair, loose-limbed and starry-eyed. Half lost in stories was Silver as his only tether. 
His glass of wine was forgotten in his hand where it lay draped over the arm of the chair. He had expected the mention of Thomas to sour the wine on his tongue, to twist his stomach into knots with envy, envy at the thought that Thomas had known Flint in a time of peace, and must have known a truer version of the man surely, envy that Thomas had held Flint's trust in a way no one else ever had and ever would. He expected the envy, and it never came. How could it? With the soft, faraway look in Flint's eyes, the ghost of a smile on his lips, and with the knowledge that he, Silver, was the only other human alive who knew what the man had meant to Flint, who knew the kind of man Flint was. No, envy wasn't the word for how Silver felt, hearing the name of Flint's lost lover. He wasn't sure if the feeling even had a name, but pride, pride was part of it. Of that he was sure. Did I know, <laughs> did I know Thomas was the greatest pain in the arse I'd ever have the fortune of meeting, seconded only by yourself? Flint asked, and the faraway look in his eyes faded, the sharp green meeting Silver's gaze. No. But I learned damn quickly, I'll tell you. Oh, I am an esteemed company in your books, Captain. I'm flattered, Silver said trying not to think too hard on why being considered in the same class as Thomas, as far as Flint was concerned, made him feel a bit light-headed. So maybe it was merely in their ability to annoy and pester, but he was equal to the man in something. "'You knew that already, you shit,' Flint replied, sipping his wine, his voice bordering on what Silver might call fond. "'Now,' The maddest thing he ever made me do, and I didn't think I ever thoroughly forgave him for this, was he and his wife Miranda threw a ball. A ball? A ball, yes. You know the shit with elaborate gowns and fine suits where you waltz and barely eat anything? Anyway, I've only attended balls held by the sea lords, and at those I was meant to be a uniformed wallflower of sorts, not to dance or involve myself in the frivolities, but... But the Hamiltons made you, didn't they? Flint made a face as if he were reliving the night in his memories. Did they dress you up? Silver pressed. Yes. You didn't try to wear your uniform? Oh, I tried. Adamantly. I bet you looked perfectly proper and utterly ridiculous, Silver said, and Flint snorted. The one blessing was I was young enough and low-class enough not to wear a wig. Silver couldn't help but laugh at the mental image. It was easier to picture now, what with Flint's meticulously shaved head. But while he had never seen Flint's hair fall past his chin, he could only begin to imagine what the chalky, white, delicately curled wigs with their ribbons might have looked like on his captain. Yes, yes, all right. You've had your giggle. <laughs> You'd have looked absurd. Silver wheezed, wiping his eyes. So no wig, but still some hideous suit. Nah, the suit was all right. Tightest fucking thing I've ever worn in my life. Thomas insisted on me visiting with his tailor and all. It was simple. Miranda had wanted us all to, to match in a way, so we all had various shades of green. Her gown, Christ, her gown was something else. Emerald green and soft to the touch. Silk or something, I reckon. Thomas wore softer shades. Light patterned waistcoat, silk coat, dark trousers... They were a pair destined for each other, you'd think, seeing them like that. And you, were you involved then? 
No, no, not yet. But looking back, it was a near enough thing. Flint smiled wryly. Nah, they had me in a simple dark coloured suit. But my waistcoat was a shade of green that fell somewhere between theirs. And of course I was their guest, so I stuck close to one or the other for most of the evening. It got us a few looks, to be sure. Silver could scarcely imagine. He knew enough of the nobles, of the moneyed ladies and gentlemen who wasted away their days in garden parties and elegant estates. He knew the venom in their smiles, how gossip came more naturally than air. God, he thought, the madness it must have been to know all this, to know the risks, and to fall in love anyway. Though, as he watched Flint, taking in the rich dark green of his loose shirt, the flush that painted his cheeks in the hollow of his throat, the way his fingers were delicate on his wine glass. Silver was beginning to think that maybe he understood it after all. He emptied his glass, sitting back in his seat with a sigh. Was it as miserable a night as it sounds? Not as bad as expected. Thomas always made for good conversation. And I was only expected to dance with Miranda at her request. Even then, we may have danced once, twice at most, since I still believed in propriety. Flint made a face at that, as if to ridicule his past self. He looked up when Silver was silent. What? Nothing, I just... I'm just trying to picture you, of all people, dancing. Oh, come off it. No, seriously, the dread Captain Flint, terror of the new world, dancing. Not to say you aren't a gentleman, Captain... By heavens, I'm having trouble conjuring up that particular image. Silver chewed his lip, keeping his gaze intently on Flint, watching as the color rose in his cheeks. God, he loved that sight. Mm, nope, I don't believe it. You don't believe it, Flint echoed sardonically. That you knew how to dance? In truth, Silver could, what with Flint's military poise and near-perfect control over his body— of course he could picture him moving in tight, careful circles across the floor, or easily in a line of dancers with an unreadable expression. But he would have kept lying through his teeth if it meant getting to tease Flint a bit longer. Flint looked torn between mild annoyance and laughter, lips twitching as he fought a smile. He knocked back the rest of his wine and Silver watched him wipe his mouth on the back of his hand. Then he stood, cleaning his hands on the sash that hung around his waist, and rounded the desk. Right then, up with you. What? I won't have you doubting me in my own cabin, Mr. Quartermaster, and clearly you won't listen to mere words. Oh, come now, Flint, I was only teasing. You know I didn't mean to offend. Silver felt a sickening twist of guilt. Had he gone too far? Had pressing and teasing about something tied to the Hamiltons been a mistake? But Flint's face was soft, his eyes keen as he reached for Silver's hand. No offense taken, but I find with these things a demonstration is often the best proof, and I cannot demonstrate without a partner. He stood like a soldier, a proper navy man with his shoulders set, spine straight, one arm tucked neatly behind his back, the other held out, palm up, next to Silver. The quiet power in his figure made Silver's mouth go dry. If you aren't too tired, of course, Flint added. I wouldn't want to cause you any discomfort. No. Silver scrambled out of his chair as best he could, using Flint's outstretched hand to pull himself up, 
too distracted by it all to feel embarrassed at needing help. No, I'm... I'm not too tired, I just... Just what? Flint asked, moving the chair out of the way so they had enough space in the center of the cabin. I admittedly do not know how to, um... dance. At all. Didn't before and certainly don't now with the, um... Silver made a face. He didn't really think he'd be able to manage it now, with a heavy peg in place of his foot. He could taste the curdled anger on the back of his tongue, irrational anger at what a comical, miserable creature he was now, as if it was his fault. But Flint seemed unbothered. I've watched men with far, far less grace than you manage it. All you have to do is trust me. Can you do that? Flint had yet to let go of his hand. Slowly, as if he were trapping a skittish cat, he pulled Silver closer, until there was mere inches between them. Trust me? Flint asked again. Silver could only nod, fear and that unnamed feeling that arose whenever Flint touched him, smiled at him, reached for him, confided in him, trusted him, had numbed his tongue and left his chest tight. He watched as Flint guided his arms into position, committing each touch to memory. Silver's right hand was placed on Flint's shoulder, the fabric of his shirt soft to the touch. His left stayed in Flint's right hand. He inhaled sharply when Flint's left hand settled, warm and sure, at the small of his back, pulling him just a bit closer. He could feel the heat of Flint's body and the urge to curl into it like a stray cat was unbearable. Flint's hand tightened around his, and Silver forced himself to look up and meet his gaze. Flint's eyes were dark, the thin lines at the corners softened. This close, Silver could nearly count the endless constellations of freckles across his high cheekbones and strong nose. I suppose, Silver said, trying to find his wit, I suppose we don't have the space or the people for the kinds of dances one does at a ball. Never much like those, anyway. Thomas taught me this one. He learned it from a Prussian friend of his. Said it was the kind of dance they did at smaller, more intimate parties, Flint explained, the corner of his mouth curling into a smile. Can't remember what it's called, but it's easy enough. We haven't any music. We don't need any. Now. Flint pressed his palm firmly against Silver's lower back. Keep your back straight, and give me a little of your weight. There, that's it. Shoulders straight for me. Good. Silver almost held his breath. The heat from Flint's touch was overwhelming, chasing the chill and the ache in his bones. The steady rise and fall of Flint's chest against his own, a new grounding sensation. Best as you can. Put your feet shoulder-width apart like so. Flynn stepped back to show him, and Silver nodded, doing his best to mimic. Very good. Don't lock your arm, he added, squeezing Silver's hand. Keep it loose enough that I can move it, but not limp. So many details. Flint chuckled warmly. <laughs> Once we start moving, you hardly notice them. He waited as Silver adjusted his grip. That's it. Very good. Silver couldn't remember the last time anyone, let alone Flint, had praised him so much and so quickly. 
especially for something as inconsequential as this. But, oh, it twisted his chest up so nicely, and warmed him like the finest aged rum, leaving him aching for more. It was almost embarrassing. Now, there's one thing I want you to remember. Don't step on your foot? Silver asked, pleased at the ride chuckle it got him. Preferably, but no. Remember what I told you during practice, about watching my eyes? He asked, and Silver nodded, puzzled. That does not apply here. If you look down, you'll overthink it. If you look at your feet or mine, it'll become complicated all over again. Just look at me, Silver. Can you do that? Silver nodded. Watch my face, take a breath, and trust me. He waited until he was sure he had all of Silver's attention. And really, Silver thought, what a funny thing for Flint to think, that his attention ever truly strayed away. There you are, Flint said softly, holding his gaze. Silver felt seen in that moment. He felt seen and impossibly small. And what's more, part of him feared what it was that Flint saw, that made his eyes warm as they did, that made his grip tighten ever so slightly. We move in a circle, Flint began, and Silver did his best to focus on his words, and not merely his voice. I lead, you follow. The natural order of things, Silver mumbled. Hush you. Flint squeezed his lower back, and Silver couldn't suppress the tremor it caused. Now, I step back like so, and your foot comes forward. Right foot first. Flint stepped back with his right foot, and Silver stepped forward, his peg following a bit more slowly. Now to the side. Very good. Small steps. We don't need to be crossing the room. Lean into me a bit more. Let me take a bit more of your weight. There. Perfect. Take a step back. Right foot. Let the peg follow. It's all right. Silver tried not to hold on tighter as he stepped blindly backwards, his eyes looking down on instinct. But Flint held him tight and moved with him. I've got you, Silver. I've got you. It knocked the breath out of Silver. He hadn't even realized he'd been holding it. Flint's voice was low, just loud enough for Silver to hear, his breath tickling his cheek. Look at me, Silver. Remember. Eyes on me. Silver felt himself press closer, the fingers of his right hand clinging tight to Flint's shirt. He nodded, looking back up at Flint's face. There. One turn done. Flint said with a hum, and Silver expected them to stop for more instructions to follow. But Flint kept moving, the same slow pace as before, guiding Silver in tight circles across the floor of the cabin. He began to count after the second turn, the faint one, two, three, two, two, three, paired with a delighted, excellent, Silver, very good, when Silver began to take the cues himself, without Flint pushing him one way or another, each step echoed by the dull thunk of iron against wood. The feel of Flint's hands, the steady cadence of his voice, kept Silver grounded, and slowly he felt the fear begin to slip away. He turned as Flint guided them, kept his feet under him, his balance steady, as he glanced to the right to see they had circled the whole of the cabin, and Silver couldn't help but look up with a bright smile and a bewildered laugh, 
Well now, Captain, you've managed a miracle, he said. His head tilted up to Flint. No miracle, Silver, Flint replied, gently pulling Silver into him, their chests flush, and his voice in Silver's ear. I had faith. The full-body shiver was inevitable, Silver's eyes slipping shut despite himself. Were I a wiser man, I think you were up to something, he murmured, and he felt the laughter rumble through Flint's chest. Good thing neither of us are all that wise, hmm? Now, don't lose count. One, two, three. After the third turn, or maybe it was the fourth, Silver was beginning to lose count. Flint stopped counting, and the rhythm of his voice became a soft, low hum. Their movements became lighter, more confident, taking them across the cabin floor in broader steps. Silver could feel the reverberations of Flint's humming in his own chest, feel the way his hands lit up his back to keep him close. And for a moment, Silver closed his eyes and let Flint carry him. His skin was warm, prickling with the same energy that Flint always instilled in him. He could remember the first time he'd become aware of Flint's touch and its effect, of his soft fingers and a gentle hand, and the way it made Silver's pulse skip. In the early days of his illness, a week or so after Charleston, perhaps, when the good doctor was still skeptical that Silver would survive at all, Silver's nightmares had begun. The concept of nightmares hadn't been new to him. He'd lived his whole life with them as his midnight companions. Silver remembered waking to moonlight, his vision hazy with sleep, and what might have been tears. He didn't know where he was, why he was there, or why everything hurt as it did. He tried lashing out, tried to fend off whatever followed him into the waking world, but his body was sluggish and exhausted and wouldn't move as he wanted. Even his voice seemed to have abandoned him. A firm hand, impossibly gentle, had come to rest on his sternum, not holding him down but giving him something real to focus on. Silver had clung to it like a child, gasping for air as another hand came to rest on the back of his neck, lifting him just enough for his chest to fill and his breathing to clear. Hush, Silver, hush. I've got you, a voice had said, familiar and foreign all at once. Silver had looked above him, his vision still swimming, to find Flint crouching on the window seat, his short hair copper in the dim light, leaning over Silver with a fearful, vulnerable look on his face. You're all right. Deep breaths for me, pup. That's it. Flint had gotten him some water and held him as he drank. Silver had tasted the faint bite of laudanum in it, but he had been too tired to argue over it. He'd fallen asleep again with Flint's hand on his chest and the other gently brushing the wild curls out of his face. When he awoke the next morning... Silver had been convinced it was as much a dream as everything else, a desperate, feverish dream his mind had conjured to try and comfort him. It had happened before, dreams of Flint, of the night they had met, of their escapades on the warship and the days that followed. But Flint's hair had been gone that night, and in all of Silver's dreams, his captain had never given up his hair in grief. It had left him shaken, 
realizing that Flint had played nurse that night, and likely so many others. But Flint had said nothing, made no move to voice his displeasure to change the new role they had undertaken together. And so Silver kept his confusion to himself, and said nothing about how shaken the touch of Flint's hand left him. The brush of Flint's mustache against his cheek roused Silver from his thoughts. He opened his eyes, the two of them still lazily moving about the room, as Flint hummed. Flint still held him close, resting his cheek against Silver's temple, so close that no light could slip between them. What must they have looked like? Silver wondered. How strange a sight they must have been. He couldn't hear the men on deck, the only ambient sounds the creaking of their ship as she kept them safe and warm, of the water below as it offered them birth for the night. But what a picture they would have made, if one of their men were to find them, Silver thought with a faint smile. The greatest villains in the new world wrapped around each other like lovers. There was no one to discover them, and had there been, what could they have done? He knew some of the men gossiped, some had their theories. Billy would watch the two of them together some days, with a look that asked when a matelage might be on the ship's books. He knew what the whispers back on NASA had been, especially after the loss of Miranda. If anything, all it might do is lead to questions from his men as to whether John was well enough, whether he was strong enough, if he had to let his captain half carry him through a dance. No, no, that wasn't true. That was his own unhappiness talking there. The men would say nothing. They respected him too much, and they feared Flint just enough. They knew he was strong enough. Flint knew he was strong enough. Silver smiled to himself. They were untouchable, the two of them. And gods he was tired of holding up the sky by himself. Flint had slowed their pace some, still carefully guiding them about the room, humming a slower, sweeter tune. His nose brushed along Silver's temple, the hand on Silver's back tracing gentle, absent-minded patterns into his shirt. Silver could feel each like a brand on his skin, goosebumps left in their wake. He looked to his left, at their joined hands, and in the beat between steps he threaded their fingers together, calloused palms and work-worn fingers interlocked. Silver could feel Flint lifting his head to turn and look, felt the low rumble of content in his chest. As he did, Silver let out a breath and closed his eyes, tilting his head so that he could rest against Flint's chest, the way he had seen young ladies do. He felt Flint stiffen, their rhythm begin to falter, and for a moment Silver wondered if he'd read it all wrong. Maybe the lesson was simply a lesson. But Flint let out a heaving breath and pressed his face into Silver's curls, the arm around his waist holding him tight. And Silver let himself settle, let himself pretend that for one night he wasn't the Pirate King, and that Flint wasn't his captain. They were simply together, and he'd let Flint carry him a little while longer. How long had it been since they started dancing? Silver couldn't see the little clock Flint kept on his desk, didn't open his eyes to check and see, 
Had it been an hour? Twenty minutes? Ten? Silver hadn't realized how easy it was to get lost in another person. It had never really happened before. He made a soft, questioning sound as Flint brought them to a stop, still holding Silver close. Silver? Flint's voice sounded strange, hesitant and searching in a way Silver hadn't heard before. It took a moment for Silver to look up. They fit so well together, and moving meant ending the fantasy. But he looked up with another questioning sound and leaned back so he could see Flint's face. His captain's eyes were dark and searching, his brow starting to furrow as he looked down at Silver. He could see the familiar twitch in Flint's jaw that meant he was thinking, thinking quickly, weighing the risks of whatever lay before him. The last time Silver had been the subject of such a look, it had been threatening. Flint trying to decide just how valuable Silver's life really was to him. But now... Now Flint was leaning in, watching Silver through his lashes. He paused, their noses brushing, and Silver held his breath, shifting his feet to try and steady himself. Flint's grip tightened, and Silver lifted his head to meet him, his pegs slipping on the wood as he pressed closer. Pain seared up Silver's left leg as his knee gave out, the peg catching on a knot in the wood and slipping out from under him. Silver cursing a blue streak, bracing himself for impact as he fell backwards, as he had taught himself early on when the peg was still new, but Flint held him tight. Easy, easy. Fucking cocksucking son of a... Silver growled through clenched teeth, his hands grabbing at Flint's shoulders. He heard Flint chuckle dryly and looked up to curse him just the same. But Flint was hauling him up before he could get the words out. Easy now. Save the bite for another time, pup, Flint told him gently, getting his arm around Silver's back so he could act as a crutch and get him to the cot, the closest place to sit. Well, Silver thought, that was one way to ruin a moment. Sorry, got caught on the fucking... It slipped sometimes, I... He tried to explain, hands gripping his knee tight as if it might dull the pain. It never did, but there was a comfort in the pressure. Silver, shut up. Flint had grabbed the wash basin and cloth from his dressing stand and one of the bottles of salve from the desk and crouched down in front of Silver, rolling up his sleeves. His brow was furrowed with the same lines Silver saw when they were on deck. Damn it. Flint couldn't even have one quiet night without Silver making a mess of it all. It's fine, I'm sorry, I'll just... I just need a minute. How long have you been wearing it today? Flint asked. Silver didn't answer. He refused to look up when Flint sighed. Stubborn pup, Flint muttered reaching for Silver's trouser leg. When Silver flinched, he stopped and looked up at him. May I tend to it? I can do it. I know you can. I'm asking if you'll allow me. Flint's hands rested on Silver's knees, warm and gentle through the fabric of his trousers. The pain in his stump had faded to a low, deep pulse. He wouldn't be dancing again that night, if nothing else. Silver searched Flint's face. For what he wasn't really sure. Pity, maybe? Revulsion? Mockery? 
something that made this seem like a mistake. But Flint was watching him quietly, his eyes soft, save for the worried furrow in his brow and the weary crow's feet. Silver nodded and sank back on the cot. The last person to do this for him had been the medicine woman in Madi's village, and she had been firm and methodical in her work. He'd been too feverish to watch her work, and part of him half-wished he was feverish now, so he didn't have to watch the way Flint's hands rolled up both of his trouser legs to his knees. Flint tisked at the sight of Silver's knee, red and swollen from a long day on deck, something the impromptu dance lesson hadn't helped. I'm sorry, I should have pressed the matter, made sure you were up for it before hauling you back to your feet, Flint muttered, his fingers working quickly on the leather straps that held the boot in place. No, I... I liked it, Silver said. I'd have said yes regardless, I think. Flint glanced up. You're not an entirely shit teacher, as it happens. The smile he got for that was small and shy, but genuine. Silver gritted his teeth as Flint carefully pulled the boot off, the night air cool compared to his burning skin. The stump was swollen and angry, the scars stark white against his skin. Silver snarled and looked away, not wanting to see the pity that had to be on Flint's face. But Flint said nothing. He looked over the stump for a moment, checking for any cuts from the leather or unusual bruising. When he was satisfied, he took up the water and cloth, holding Silver's thigh as he gently washed his knee and the scarred skin below it. His touch was so delicate that Silver almost didn't feel it through the ache, the drag of the cotton cloth adding to the redness and the sting. Flint shushed him as he worked, murmuring soft apologies as he rolled up Silver's trouser leg a bit higher and washed the bit of his thigh that he could reach. While Silver's left leg dried, Flint turned to his good leg and proceeded to give it the same attention. Silver had trouble breathing, the careful press of confident fingers against his tight muscles, followed by the cool water, made him shiver. He watched the muscles flex in Flint's forearms, the back of his damp hands, and didn't know what was more maddening, that or the calloused fingers that cradled his calf. I know we've had this conversation before, and I know what you're going to say, Flint began, reaching for the towel he'd brought over with him and drying Silver's legs. But you don't have to wear the boot day in and day out, Silver. I have to keep up appearances and make sure they don't begin to doubt your strength. Yes, I know. But there are no men here. Flint sat back on his heels and reached for the bottle of salve. Only me. Flint. And I'm starting to think by now, there's very little you could do to make me doubt you, or your strength. Silver stuttered, trying to find something to say as Flint coated his hands in salve, the smell of herbs heavy in the air between them. There was always something. There had to be something. There was always a catch in Silver's experience, and Flint, Flint of all people, couldn't be different, could he? Before he could find his argument, Flint took his stump in hand again, and it was all Silver could do to try and breathe as stinging cold shot through his nerves. He grabbed for Flint's shoulder, trying to ground himself. Easy, easy. 
It gets better in a moment. Flint worked the salve into Silver's skin, gently tracing the scars and massaging the knots that seemed to be permanently above his knee. It made Silver squirm and curse, both hands holding tight to Flint's broad shoulders. But soon the sting faded and a blissful warmth lingered in its place, the bruises numbed by the herbs and Flint's careful attention. There we are, Flint hummed, getting more salve and working his way up past Silver's knee to whatever parts of his thigh he could reach. Silver could feel himself trembling. The impossibly soft touch, so foreign a thing, it almost scared him. He watched as Flint coated his hands again and reached for his right foot, working his fingers against the ball of his foot, the tendons in his ankle. The whimpering sound Silver made seemed to echo in the cabin, and God Silver wanted to curl in on himself and hide. He sounded so pitiful. But Flint just encouraged him softly, answering each broken sound Silver made with a gentle hum, pressing his fingers harder until the knots gave way. You... you make no sense, Silver gasped out, his chest heaving as Flint worked his way up his calf. How so? Men's... men's hands aren't made for this. Flint paused, looking up with a frown. What do you mean? I've seen what your hands can do. I... I have been subjected to them as much as anyone's. Men's hands... They're not made for softness, for... for... Ah! Flint began working again, Silver trying to hold on to his thoughts. They aren't made for kindness, in my experience. They... They aren't made for gentleness, only violence, only cruelties. I've seen the things your hands can do, and here you... Mm, Fuck! Here you are! Flint dug his thumb into a rather persistent knot on the inside of Silver's knee, pulling a ragged moan from Silver as the knot finally gave way. Shit! Here I am, Flint echoed, asking Silver to try and continue. Here you are touching me like this. You're always touching me like this, like something delicate, and I... I don't fucking understand it, Flint, Silver forced out, his knuckles white with how tightly he held to his captain's shoulders. Flint was quiet for a moment, finishing his work on Silver's right thigh and rubbing his hands back down his calf. He washed his hands in the basin and dried them, Silver watching through his lashes. His body felt heavy, half numb from the salve and exhausted from so many long days. His nerves were humming with the warmth of Flint's touch, his hands trembling as he tried to pull them away. He made to settle them in his lap, but Flint reached for them before he could, taking Silver's hands in his own. Never had a man touch you like this before? With care? Flint asked his thumbs rubbing gentle circles into the back of Silver's hands. The bitterness in the laugh Silver let slip could have curdled milk. No, Captain. No one has, Silver admitted softly, looking down at where their hands were joined. Nor have I ever learned how. I'm at a loss here, truly. Men have touched me, sure. Women, too. But none of it was like this. It was harsh, as most men and women are. 
Silver shook his head. And here you are, getting me all confused. Flint's silence made Silver's stomach coil tight. He ducked his head with a bitter smile. Pitiful, I know. I, I wasn't going to say anything, but you've... <laughs> you've gone and robbed me of my wit. Do you enjoy it? Flint asked finally. Silver blinked and looked up with a small frown. Enjoy what? When I touch you. Like this. Flint lifted one of his hands, reached up to tuck Silver's hair behind his ear, fingers brushing along his cheekbone. Softly. Despite himself, Silver leaned into the touch, chasing the shock of warmth that offered. Had he always been so starved for it? Or was this the result of a lifetime alone? To be so desperate for the touch, he'd sacrifice all sense for it. Answer me, pup. Flint trailed his fingers along Silver's jaw, the pet name bewildering and right all at once. Do you like it? Would I be baring my throat to you if I didn't? Silver asked, his breath stuttering as Flint's fingers curled under his chin for a moment. You've done it before for other reasons, Flint reminded him, watching his fingers as they found Silver's pulse. So tell me, do you enjoy it? When I touch you like this? There was the faintest pressure against his throat, Flint's fingers tightening as if out of habit. But the fear Silver used to feel was absent. He let out a ragged breath and closed his eyes, pressing into the hand on his throat. Yes, Captain. You trust me to keep touching you like this? Flint's fingers continued their path down Silver's throat, tracing the dip of his collarbone with gentle curiosity. Yes. Later, Silver might look back and think he'd lost his damn mind, trusting Flint in such a way. But no. No, it was the truth. There was no one he trusted the way he did Flint. Do you want me to keep touching you, pup? Please. Silver felt Flint move, felt him rise and press closer, felt his hand slip away only to settle on his hip the other slipping around to hold the back of his neck. Silver had just enough time to open his eyes and see the soft, wanting look in Flint's eyes before Flint was kissing him. So softly, so carefully, that Silver thought his heart might break from it. Flint smiled, pulling back just far enough to look over Silver's face, his thumb pressing gently against the hinge of Silver's jaw. Good boy. More praise, God, Silver couldn't stomach any more unwarranted praise. He grabbed Flint's collar and pulled him into another kiss, sloppy and needy, until Flint got his hand into Silver's hair and calmed him. He turned the kiss slow and sweet, coaxing Silver's mouth open and tilting his head to deepen it. The hand Flint had on Silver's hip moved, pressing against his lower back and pulling him to the edge of the cot so that Flint was well and truly tucked between his thighs. Silver's hands trembled on Flint's collar, desperate to touch, but unsure. He'd never been here before. Any kisses had been for coin or cleverness, a trick or a ruse, never something like this. What did he do with his hands? What would Flint allow? He must have made a small sound of distress, because Flint hushed him, fingers scratching at his scalp. You're all right, pup. 
What do you need? I... I want to touch... Flint leaned back and lifted his chin, inviting Silver's hands to touch his throat. It was such a stark show of trust that Silver stared at him, shaken. It's all right. Go on, Flint told him, smiling softly. Oh, but that smile would be Silver's undoing. He was sure of it. Slowly, Silver traced the shape of Flint's throat, the strong edge of his jaw. He combed his fingers through Flint's beard and reveled in the sigh it earned him. How long had he waited for this, to touch the man before him, to know him in such a way? Had he even known that was what he wanted? Or had he simply wanted endlessly, wanted whatever he might be spared? He cradled the back of Flint's head as he was pulled back into a kiss, fingers petting the short copper hair, clinging to him for a lifeline. His body ached and hummed with a strange sort of want, exhaustion twisting into something he didn't have a name for. It wasn't lust. Flint deserved something far more than mere lust. He let out a shaky breath when he felt Flint's hands work their way under his shirt. They didn't pull or push or force anything, simply rested, open-palmed against his back, warming him to his core. Silver's nerves were alight in a way he'd never known before, from something so simple as a kiss, a touch, the press of Flint's body against his. All right, pup? Flint asked against his jaw, leaving lazy kisses in the wake of his words. Silver nodded, leaning into Flint like a moth pulled to a lantern. Did you plan this? Silver asked, tilting his chin up, giving Flint room to mouth at his throat. Plan what? The mischievous innocence in his tone made Silver huff. This seduction, you planned it, didn't you? Flint hummed against his pulse, biting gently at it until a little mark appeared, Silver squirming under his hands. A seduction makes it sound like I've tricked you into something, pup. Oh, does it? Hmm. And I did no such thing. All I did was ask you to dine with me and keep a bit of faith. <laughs> never, mm, never thought you a faithful man in that respect, Silver moaned softly as Flint left another mark on the hollow of his throat. I haven't been for a long, long time. You must have brought it out in me. The way you spoke, I thought, with everything that had happened. Flint lifted his head, not without nuzzling Silver's jaw first. I won't say I expected any of this, but I am here because it's what I want, because it feels right, Silver. I spent a long time in isolation, thinking it was all I deserved, I'm learning maybe that wasn't true at all. Because of me? As I said, unexpected. Like the way you came barreling into my life to rob me, Flint teased, kissing the corner of Silver's mouth as he laughed. Didn't know I was robbing you at the time, to be fair. Mm, I suppose. But the point of it is, pup, Flint said, that if I'm not meant to be alone, then neither are you. No one's wanted me before, Flint. Can't fault me for thinking, hush. No one else matters. Just you and me, 
and what we want from this moment. Flint rubbed his back gently, Silver leaning into him as the weight of the day and the warmth of Flint's touch bled together. Gods, he was tired. And what do you want from it, Captain? Silver asked softly. I want you to stay with me. Tonight. Tomorrow. However long you can. Flint cradled Silver's face in his hand, reverently, as if Silver was something precious. How strange to think that he might be. I don't know how to... I expect nothing from you, Silver. Nothing. Tonight, you're going to sleep. You've been hard enough on your body today, and I've not helped matters. But I want you to stay all the same. And in the morning, you and I will sit down like sensible men. Silver huffed at that. Hush. Like sensible men. And decide what we want. All right? Silver looked at him, searching his face for something, anything that told him to run. He'd always run. There was always a good reason to. And sure, maybe if he'd had some sense in him, maybe if it hadn't been Flint, he'd have found some reason to flee. But all he saw was openness, trust, and an emotion he was too terrified to give a name to. You... You just want to sleep? Silver asked after a moment. Well, I'd like to hold you a bit, but only if you'll allow it. Flint tilted his head, watching Silver with that same heartbreaking smile. I think I could allow it, on one condition. Anything, pup. Kiss me again? Flint chuckled and pulled Silver into a soft, lingering kiss, one that seemed, if nothing else, to make a promise. They dimmed the lights and stripped each other down to their breeches, wandering hands mapping scarred skin in the dim light, trading lazy kisses as they went, Flint finding an extra pillow and blankets from his cabinet for the cot. Silver watched him as he went about the room, checking the door and the windows, washing his face and hands, and bringing Silver some water. He was fascinated by Flint, always had been, but now the fascination had shifted. There was a whole new side to the man, soft and shy and sweet. And Silver was the one person in the whole world who was allowed to see that version of Flint. That knowledge felt like a benediction. The ship creaked and whispered around them, the water speaking softly against the hull. The docks still echoed in the distance with their reverie, but they were cradled in the safety of their ship. Silver crawled under the covers once Flint had settled, shy and unsure, and let himself be pulled under Flint's arm. I've got you, Flint murmured in the dark. Silver felt his fingers toy idly with his curls, petting and soothing until Silver was tucked comfortably into his side, his exhaustion finally winning out. Flint's body was warm and solid beneath him, and Silver couldn't help but smile as he found Flint's hands, and their fingers threaded together. What a ridiculous sight they must make in the eyes of the gods, he thought, as he drifted. How strange a pair they were. How perfect, despite it all.
for the first time in his memory. Silver slept the whole night through, curled into flint like a ship that had finally found its way home. I'm so honored to finally get to sit down and chat with James, a.k.a. Lupus Maris, who wrote this absolutely gorgeous story. As a side note, life is happening around me as we chat. If you hear my children, I'm very sorry, but that's life, right? Thank you so much for joining me today. So let's just dive right in. So uh, let's talk about when you first discovered Black Sails. So I actually had a really funny introduction to Black Sails. Um, it was not the conventional, oh, my friends are watching it. I guess I'll just hop on the bandwagon. Um, a few of my mutuals had started watching it, but I it was between season three and four. Um, so it had kind of quieted down a little bit on the dash. And my partner had actually found it on a lull between his um, shows and was really insistent, hey, I think this is going to be really up your alley. Um, and he got really deeply invested. But I had been a bit hesitant to pick up a new piece of media at the time. Um, I was in the process of trying to transition in my career from retail to something different. Um, I had just really started considering going back to like therapy and really spending time with like my mental health. And so diving back into a new fandom, a new piece of media that looked like it was going to really require me to um, spend time with it critically and use my brain and engage with it on a deep level mm -hmm. um, was more than I was willing to. So I thought give at the time to something and so I told him, you know, I'm glad you're enjoying it. I'm going to kind of keep my distance. But he kept having to ask me Treasure Island related questions as mm -hmm. he went through, um, such as, hey, is the name Billy Bones familiar? Uh, yeah, he's in Treasure Island. Okay. So if he falls off a boat, is that serious? Well, yeah, he has to be at the end of the show. He was in the, he's in the book. Oh, okay. Because he just fell off a boat. Um, so there was a lot of conversation and a lot of questions and then eventually conversations about really significant events that were very intriguing and very emotionally, um, exciting. And so next thing I know, I'm sitting down on the couch and we're turning on the, uh, pilot and I don't know, it was the first episode, that first opening scene when you see the walrus kind of raid that merchant ship, but from the merchant ship's perspective, mm -hmm. um, and then it cuts immediately to from the real pageantry and drama of what the world saw pirates as to the very administrative day-to-day -day dullness of piracy 
and seeing what can be sold, what it's worth. And then the silliness of just them being people. I was captivated as a, just a fan of history. And I was just like, oh, darn it. Here we go. <laughs> it was just yep. all downhill, all downhill from there. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I've heard so many people malign season one. It does have its issues. The Blackbeard joke is it's <laughs> just inexcusable. Eleanor's entrance is uh, pretty interesting. But I was also hooked with the very first episode. I absolutely loved it. The tension. And I remember watching that first that first scene. And then when they cut to the title sequence, I was like, oh, man, I was like, "Okay, we are in for it now. I I also started watching it when it was initially on air, like as the first season was airing, I started watching it and I quit after episode three for reasons. Um, I was coming fresh off of Outlander at the time and it was just too much of all of that. And um, I was uh, heavily involved in Outlander because of um, being involved with the Outlander cast blog and all of that. And so um, I felt the need to continue it. And what's interesting is I stopped watching Black Sails, which literally does not have any scenes of sexual assault throughout the remainder of the series uh, after it is finally addressed. And then Outlander goes on to just be constant and overwhelming. So it was just too much. But I finally came back to it um, during about the middle of 2020 when I was just going through it and I I just needed something and it sucked me in so hard. So, yeah. What really resonated for you about the show compared to anything else that you'd watched previously? I feel like there were really two aspects that resonated deeply with me. Um, The first being the strength and quality of the story writing and the characters. Um, And then the way it kind of functioned as sort of a funhouse mirror uh, for me as an audience member. Um, Mm. And in that, I mean, I don't really like the term relatability as far as media goes. I feel like that simplifies things a lot, but I really like media as a mirror. Uh, for the audience I like when we can see Mm. ourselves in media Um, but as far as the first aspect goes as a writer um, of fiction and screenplays and some nonfiction, but primarily fiction and screenplays I'm very critical of media I consume not like fully intentionally it's like an unavoidable side effect when you really get into it and you do the craft and you go study it um, either in school or on your own you inevitably develop a slight um, pretentiousness, for lack of a better word. Um, <laughs> or I encourage you to develop a, a slight pretentiousness. It's not mm-hmm. a bad thing. It becomes a bad thing when you then take it out on other people. Um, but when you cultivate a, a taste um, that is very much your own, you really develop a really fantastic kind of personal library of media. And so mm-hmm. the thing about Black Sales was even with its weak points, like, season one maybe not being strong despite being a fascinating way of introducing characters and the world and pulling us in and then pulling the rug out from under us um Mm -hmm. 
And then the Maroon storyline maybe not being as strong as it could have been with Steinberg coming in and saying that himself. Like, there's a lot of self-awareness, both in the writer's room and the story and the narrative. Mm. Um, It's really the first show that I had really interacted with where the strengths were there, the weaknesses were known and spoken about openly. The narrative was crafted with an incredible amount of care and attention. The characters were deeply, deeply, beautifully created with so many layers and just a myriad of details that both the actors and the writers brought to it. And it wasn't shy from making the audience both feel respected as far as their intelligence level and uncomfortable because you are witnessing a tragedy. This is the closest mm-hmm. thing to a Shakespearean tragedy that I've oh yeah witnessed since, you know, the BBC did the redo of the Shakespearean tragedies with like Ben Wishaw and, and, and um, Tom Middleston. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, but it really involves the audience in a lot of ways. So it, I felt very respected as a, an audience member, you know, I didn't feel like it was pandering to me or making me feel unintelligent in a sense. Um, so as a writer and a craftsman, I really, really enjoyed that. And then as for the latter, um, Black Sales offered a chance for self-reflection in a lot of ways. And, you know, I a lot of people have said that for a lot of different reasons. And I think at face value, I'm very much sort of like the run-of-the-mill semi-privileged like white kid. And that's very much a, a fair assessment when you just kind of pass me on the street. Um, but at the same time, um, the other side of that coin is... I'm a transmasculine 30 year old with developing disabilities who experienced a lot of loss growing up. And I've spent a lot of my adulthood really fighting and working to find structure and stability and a sense of vindication, I suppose, like that sense of the suffering wasn't worth it, but I'm going to be better for it, I suppose. And Black Sails, in a lot of ways, was the first time that I saw my grief, my anger, my struggles with a sudden and developing disability, um, developing disability, uh, my queerness, my falling out with my father, my struggle with identity and polyamory woven complexly into a equally complex narrative without any of it being overshadowed or tokenized. Um, None of it was a gotcha or a reactionary thing. It was just aspects of who these were, these people were. Um, Dealt with a lot of respect and a lot of love. Um, And it wasn't just Flint as this beacon of, you know, relatability, though I've said I don't like that word, but, you know, reflection for myself. It was the whole main ensemble I could find something that then made me step back and reflect. Uh, Flint, Silver, Vane, Jack, I mean, every single one of them, I could sit there and see a echo of myself in their monologues, their experiences. And it was really, really fascinating because I don't think there were many shows that I had interacted with as an adult that had made me feel that way. So I really, really, really appreciated that. And I think the last aspect of it is at the end of the day, underneath all of the narrative layers, and despite how you may feel about the ending, bitter, bittersweet, 
the story is very much crafted around love. Everyone does what they do in a sense of for love, even if it is a damaged and warped sense of mm. it. Um, and that's something that in storytelling, I deeply really enjoy um, because I think that's a dare, very much a, a chief motivator for people, especially damaged people. Um, oh, yeah. So seeing that as like the red thread through the whole show very clearly um, was something I really loved too. Yeah. So what I what I love about what you said about, you know, relating with disability and having issues with your father and you know, it that touches on all of those characters. You're so right, because never have I seen a show that allowed uh, a disability to have such a prominent place in a story where they deal not just with the physicality of it with John Silver, but with the emotional impact that that has, the psychological damage that that does. And, you know, and the whole interaction with with Flint and Silver on the cliffs, the training where he says, I think we're beyond that. And it just, oh, my God, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And no, no matter where you stand in terms of what the actual dynamic is there, mm-hmm. um, it's just a beautiful relationship. And it's so wonderfully written. It is. So. Really. Um, what is your fandom background? Have you been involved in fandoms before? Um, or is this, have you just dipped your toe in with Black Sails? I got a good kick out of this question, actually, uh, because I jokingly titled um, my folder of Black Sails fic, uh, Coming Out of Retirement, um, because <laughs> okay. I did a whole lot of fandom writing for a very long time and then effectively retired. Uh, because I had kind of lost the spark and the love and the investment for fandom writing, at least in public spaces. I did, I think my first fandom writing was probably like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or something when I was in like middle school. Um, I don't think it ever hit the internet, but that was definitely the earliest was that in like Yu-Gi-Oh or something. Um, The first published fan works that I was doing was probably Marvel. And then I did Suits. I spent some time with Star Trek. And so I have a lot of varied fandom experiences. But I think for me, I started to struggle with how to balance that and life at the same time and maintain that spark of joy for both. Kind of in that KonMari idea of what sparks joy. And in honesty, nothing was really sparking joy. It wasn't fandom's fault. It was everything. Uh, was really just sort of figuring out what was the 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 joy in life. And I had started watching Black Sails, and I hadn't really been fandom writing. I was doing some occasional smattering of stuff between friends, but nothing that was really of substance. Um, I started watching Black Sails. And before I even finished the series, I was writing fic again, adamantly writing fic. And I was mm. role playing with a friend and I, I finished not national novel writing months. The year, the first year I wrote, I, I watched uh, Black Sails. So it was probably 2018. Um, and that was 50,000 words is the goal for national novel writing months, except instead of doing it in a month, which is what you're supposed to do, I did it in about two weeks, 
um, because I was just hyper fixating so much on black sales. It pulled me fully out of retirement. It was just like, these characters are living in your head forever. They're never going away. Um, And so I'm grateful for that because it really pulled me back out. And I, around about a year later, I ended up getting a bipolar diagnosis, bipolar one diagnosis. And I realized a lot of my writing was being done when I was manic. Mm -hmm. And that meant I got to learn how to write when I wasn't manic, which was a whole thing. And Black Sales has been allowing me to learn that because I'm still working actively on Black Sales projects. And it's a whole experience of learning to love fandom, again, specifically our little corner of the Black Sales fandom, which has been really, really good to me, really loving. Um, Keep loving this show and then learning to love my writing again. Black Sales has really been the first fandom in which I found my little niche and I actually stayed comfortable there. Not my first fandom, but the first one that I'm content to stay in for as long as it's around. So, so I, I have to be honest, like my very first fan fiction that I ever read was for Black Sales. I was a, a literature major and also uh, doing musical theater. And so I was a bit of a snob before I actually read any fan fiction. I was like, all right, this is uh, derivative. It's unoriginal and it's probably not very good. And I don't know if I got lucky, but the very first one I read was Broken Little Stars. Um, I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) Is it all like this? Because I went, I was, I had just finished the series Uh and I was like, oh, what do I do now? What do I do now? Like the brain rot, it is real. Mm -hmm. So I dove right in and was just devouring it. And I'm going to um, just fangirl a little bit because your story touched me so deeply in my soul. Um, it, it's so beautiful. It really is. When I was trying to drag my sister screaming into Black Sails, um, I said, listen, you, you watch the show. The show is amazing. And I said, then afterwards... I said, you can read things like this <laughs> and it's just, and there's so much of it and I have devoured so much of it and I don't ever want to leave. I don't ever want to leave this fandom. It really yeah. is a special place. It really is. And I, this fic has a really special place in my heart because it remains the only published canon fic I've written. Everything else that I've shared has been in like a modern age setting Mm-hmm. Um, this is the only canon setting fic that I feel was really, truly, ex- like, at the level where it could be shared and, like, Flint and Silver were really just where they were meant to be. And I still reread it from time to time, but I don't reread my work a lot unless I am actively working on the next piece. And this one I will go back to and just reread it because I'm I'm still very pleased with it. So it makes it whenever someone talks about it, I just get I'm like, okay, maybe I should go sit down at my desk and work on something <laughs> because it really is just like, no, no, go back and work because it's the nice times to hear when people really, really do appreciate it. You don't write for the world, but when the world comes back and says, no, we do, we do like it. It helps you pick up again. 
Yeah. Yeah. You send something out and it was like, I hope this finds a kindred spirit, you know, some, someone that, that, uh, interacts with stories the way that I do. Um, and, uh, it's just amazing. Um, one of the things that I noticed in the Flint silver and, um, also, um, silver Flint ham Mm. that you, that you've written was dancing as a motif (laughs) and I okay so the other one I (laughs) I was I'm like oh my god this is a Stephen Sondheim reference I was so excited (laughs) and I'm like oh my gosh that I have to read this I have to read this right now and let me tell you dancing works what what brought you to that as a motif so it's actually funny because when you when I saw that this was going to be one of the questions um, we had discussed we were going to talk about this, I actually went and checked the modern the new modern AU I'm writing. It is also a motif there. Um, <sighs> so apparently I have like, <laughs> I have a trademark now, which is dancing, and I'm not I'm really actually thrilled about it. Um, I don't dance a lot myself outside of like in my house, so I'm a little surprised that it. Nevertheless, but I I find it to be a really interesting variation, at least in this respect, um, for like the swordplay trope um, that's really used in shows like Black Sails and adventure shows, masculine heavy shows, um, where you have a sort of power play going on between the characters and one is usually pressed to show some level of vulnerability. In these two that you're referencing, Being Alive and uh, A Vulgar Holy Thing, both are waltzes, which heavily require trust between partners because you have someone who is leading and someone who is following. And if I am honest, I think Silver would deeply struggle with a waltz if he was in his clear-headed mind because having to trust and follow somebody would be very uncomfortable for him. Um, So in a vulgar holy thing, him having that sort of not already feeling fully present, being a little uncomfortable is kind of what allows Flint to then step in and say, hey, you look like you need to talk about something. Um, (laughs) You know, I I had to have him be a little shaken. Also with being alive, Silver had to be a little shaken. Um, you kind of need to have him rocked on his foundation a little bit. Otherwise, definitely wouldn't work. But, you know, it's a very controlled dance in these kind of situations. Um, because, especially in canon setting, the waltz would have really been more of like a country hall folk dance. It hadn't really made its way to aristocratic England yet. Um, so it wouldn't have been something that like Thomas and Miranda would have done at their parties but it would have been something they probably would have learned from a visiting friend Hmm. uh, that they would do in private in the salon after dinner to kind of flirt with James Um, so there's an intimacy to it as well um, which adds to that level of vulnerability Um, and so it really for both of them, it really requires Silver to be really trusting, and it really requires Flint to show his hand and put a bit of pressure on him. Like, in this moment, you need to be calm. You need to be that guiding light, almost. Like, you need to be that 
leader figure that you claim that you can be, um, mm-hmm. but don't always show yourself to be because you get emotionally messy from time to time. Um, and so I find that dancing really puts them in that kind of position without them having to talk about it because these characters really struggle to be honest linguistically. Uh, both of them have shown that they will say something and absolutely not mean it. Um, yeah. But phys- physically, you know, with the sword fighting, for example, that sword play montage, the training, there was probably a lot more honesty being said in whatever was going on in that sword training montage uh, that wasn't being said. And we just didn't really get to see it because it was a montage. So I feel like physicality between characters that lie a lot gives mm-hmm. you a lot more honesty. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it just works so well. It really does. And it's a motif that that has a pretty solid place in, you know, period pieces and in literature. Um, it's where characters finally can um, address each other on like an even playing field mm-hmm. and all of the everything, all the noise outside um, that is um, distracting them from, you know, what's right in front of them just vanishes. And um, it just is so it works so beautifully in in this fic and the way that it sits in canon, this the whole story, I can't get over it. It, it absolutely you could slot it right in and it would work. I absolutely love it. Um, so do you have a favorite line or passage that you've ever written? Ooh, uh, ooh. There's a fair few. I'm, I'm, so it's kind of like choosing your favorite child sometimes, um, which is very hard to do for me, at least. Um, especially because as you write more and more, you get like your new favorites, but then you go back and look at your old stuff and you're like, oh no, but that was really good. Um, my current favorites, so if we go with current ones, um, mm-hmm. I'm working on my um, current modern AU and there's a conversation that uh, Silver is having with Rackham. And there are a few pieces from that that I'm really, really fond of. Yes. Um, so. I will just probably sample a couple of lines from it because it's most of the scene is the exchange. Um, So to set the scene, um, they are in a rooftop lounge having dinner uh, or sort of happy hour aperitifs. And Silver is incredibly on edge. He keeps scanning the room. He feels like something's off. And Rackham is effectively holding an intervention. Um, He... He, Rackham, the Rangers, they've all kind of retired from con artist life. They've kind of, they've got enough money. Um, They are not so much being law-abiding citizens as they are picking up hobbies and just being really good at them. Mm -hmm. Um, So Max and Rackham have a fashion line and is doing freelance photography, kind of just enjoying herself. Um, and Vane is technically working at a bar that Flint and, uh, Hal Gates own because Max got tired of bailing him out of jail, um, is sort of the premise right now. Um, Silver does not know Flint is in the same city and does not know that he and Rackham are on, Flint and Rackham are on good terms, 
Uh, Silver has not seen Flint in six years at this point, and they did not part on positive terms. So he is not prepared to in any way come across Flint. And Rackham chose this restaurant specifically because he knew Flint was probably going to turn up that evening. And I'm very fond of this whole scene because as Silver and Jack are talking, Silver spots something out of the corner of his eye that it's at first just a man with red hair and Silver slates it to anxiety. But as Rackham sort of lays into him for how Silver refuses to let himself be happy, how he was totally okay with giving Flint a second chance, letting him be, you know, with his husband, letting him go off and live a whole happy life after all the horrible things he'd done and how horribly he treated everybody, but you don't get to, you know, be happy. And I guess the point, you know, there's a part where he asks Jack, you know, your point, Jack, if you please. The point is, I have two reasons for you being in Manhattan. The first is a very selfish cause, the job, of course. The second, Rackham waved a hand with an easy smile. Let's call a spiteful setting of the scales. What are you talking about? He pauses, the ghost, the ghost in the corner of his eye. Silver felt his blood run cold and his heart drop, a lead weight into the pit of his empty stomach. He sat still, as still as a man possibly could with the fear clawing its way up his throat like a caged animal desperate for air. Rackham watched him, carefully sipping his cocktail. Do you know why I picked this spot? It's a new place, just opened a couple weeks ago and still very precious, hard to get a table. The dream of a whiz kid from the Bronx, so I'm told. Incredibly talented, next to no formal training, just devotion and ambition. And of course, he tilts his head to the bar. The right sympathetic ear with a very sexy bank account. Takes a bit of digging online to find the investors. They prefer privacy, not to overshadow the stars they patron. Jack. Silver's voice barely registered over the echoing noise of the lounge. The ghost was moving, greeting someone at the bar, someone wearing a chef's coat. But if you go digging, if it interests you, you would find one Lord Thomas Hamilton, Rackham said, looking Silver over. He's a devoted patron of well-deserving cases, it seems, especially now that he's got his old man's money on top of whatever share Flint still has in the vault. There was a knife in his hand. Silver didn't remember reaching for it. The serrated dinner knife clutched in a white knuckle grip so that the blade was parallel with his wrist, sharp edge outward. But holding it, solid, real, and sure, was a comfort all the same, even if with the ghost was just some man with red hair. The room felt impossibly small, suffocating, the sound muted save for Rackham's voice. His hands rested on his lap, knife in the right, the left clutching tightly at his left knee that ached with an old, vengeful pain. What was that you were saying before, Rackham asked, your heart being cold and hollow? Sounds a bit like that grave you should have put him in when you had the chance, don't you think? Before love snared you like the rest of us. That's probably one of my favorite parts right now. And then you go on to when he and Flint see each other, there's a nice little description of it. But that's probably one of my favorite little bits is just, I really enjoy writing Rackham and I don't get to write him enough. So You get his voice really well. Thank you. You really do. It, it just, <laughs> it, yeah his turn of phrase it's really great and i love that silver is grabbing a butter knife <laughs> he's just like <laughs> what are you gonna do with that sir? he's like on site <laughs> on site i don't whatever will work i'll find something <laughs> <laughs> that's great so. oh my gosh um what are your favorite tropes to write about Ooh, to write about 
I'm really big on found family. I really, I'm a sucker for writing mm. a found family story. Um, and I didn't intend to go into that, but I realized it's kind of a pattern. Um, I've done that in fanfic and in original stuff. Um, a lot of my black sales things end up as a inadvertent found family kind of situation. Um, where even if they don't like each other, they kind of end up together. Um, a lot of times, like Billy will still be there. The Walrus crew will still be hodgepodge together. Occasional bloodlust for each other aside, they will still be together. I might throw the Rangers in there somewhere and we'll make it work because I really enjoy the found family trope. Um, I enjoy a good power dynamic, but again, I'm... I want to make sure the chemistry is there. I want to make sure that I'm getting the balance right. Um, I love a good AU. I am a sucker. Oh, me too. I am a sucker for a good <laughs> AU. If I watch a movie, there's a good chance that I'm sitting there going, wait, can I turn this into a, a, an AU? Especially old movies. Um, I love going through like classic Hollywood movies and saying, oh, I could I could make a fic out of that. That I could make mm. a black sales fic out of that. Um, I have a whole side thing on my Scrivener file for Black Sales that are just, you know, To Catch a Thief AU, Sherrod AU, you know, all these like Audrey Hepburn movies and Grace Kelly movies and Cary Grant movies that I will one day do one shots mm. for. Um, do you know what would be amazing? What? Okay, because talking about old films and I'm a big Marilyn fan and you know what would work amazingly? Have you seen The Seven Year Itch? That silver as, as Marilyn and, and Thomas is the husband at that would be so funny camp, except twist, he's okay with it. That would be so funny. That would be so funny because I also want to oh do God. the other the other Marilyn movie I want to do is how to marry a billionaire or a billionaire. Yes. That's the other one I want to do. I haven't figured out who to make who, but that is the other one that I want to do is How to Marry a Millionaire because I love Marilyn and Bacall. I so love, yes. Oh my gosh. That's the other one I want to do. So, um, and then I like doing slice of life stuff as well. Like I really like, because I don't, not quite coffee shop at you, but just like, I like to make them professors. I like to make them, um, you know, if I'm doing like a modern AU or canon slice of life every day kind of thing. Mm -hmm. like vulgar holy thing was just a night in port you know yeah oh my god uh, a day in town uh, you know what's a day on the ship going to be like those are kind of fun for me especially because it means I can do some research on mm -hmm. the background of things yeah it's yeah it, it is a perfect encapsulation of like just a moment in time and it's just so sweet I love it um, what are your favorite tropes to read about? Because I know um, it's not always the same thing. Um, I, as a singer, I have a lot of things that I love to sing. I absolutely love to sing. It just sits in my voice. But the things I like to listen to are not always the same thing. Right. Um, I like to listen to a lot of stuff that I am not really great at. Um, right. So are there any tropes that you really like to uh, read others write? that you don't have to really think about that you can just sit and absorb. I won't lie. I love a good AU done by other people. Like some people mm -hmm. are like, everyone has such a fantastic perspective on the world that they're going to produce AUs I could never conceive of. And I'll go through the fanfics or I'll go through those kind of things. And the AUs they've come up with are fantastic. I also 
same way as far as like regular fiction or nonfiction goes. Again, it's not a uh, relatability thing, but like that funhouse mirror reflection thing. I love being able to learn about both the world and myself through perspective of others. So like I've been reading a lot of nonfiction lately to get like a window into the world. I want to learn from what I'm reading it, not the way that it's a textbook, but like I love reading travel uh, books, not quite travel like guidebooks, but like an account of someone's life living in a foreign country for a while oh, or mm-hmm. their travel adventures. Like I love Tony Bourdain's kind of books, those kind of things. Oh, oh yeah. Um, but I also historical fiction when researched well, I can really enjoy. Um, I love a good complex power dynamic, but again, it's a fine line between consensual and complex and very carefully telling people how to hurt one another. And so I'm very picky about Mm -hmm. that kind of thing, Yeah, Um, which I think all readers should be. I think all readers should vet, you know, that kind of thing. I love the complicated power dynamics in fantasy, in urban fantasy, in queer novels and things. But I also, from my own experiences and from the experiences of my friends and from things that I write, I know what red flags are and stuff. And so I'm just like, hmm that one's a red flag and I work in marketing and I'm a writer. So if I pick up something and it's clearly a fill in the blank for a marketing ploy, I won't read that, but I get excited about um, really creative new like fantasy worlds or historical retellings of things. So what is your uh, background as a writer in terms of where did you develop your voice? Because it is very strong it's not anything that that strikes me as an amateur's voice. It's not trying to find its footing. It is very present and very strong. And it the text is alive. And I absolutely love it. And so where did you develop your, your writing skills? Thank you. Um, I So it's a mix of self-taught. Um, initially, as a kid, I was writing, you know, a lot of really fun, like elaborate fantasy stuff, as a lot of kids do. Um, but it definitely got into like the hyperfixation. I want to be a writer. I want to be a writer. I want to be a writer. Writing original stuff for every excuse I could have. Um, then becoming, you know, writing fan works for all the cartoons I would watch, original characters, whatever I could come up with. And then when high school came around, I got very, very lucky. Um, my parents weren't thrilled with like my home choice for school. Um, because we were zoned to certain high schools and um, the options was a special transfer which would take a whole lot of time for paperwork or apply to an art school and the art school had a literary program that was on par with a college level literary uh, degree effectively you didn't get a degree when you finished but you left with enough to prepare you for midway through a college level literary course And so freshman year, we did poetry and general literature. Second, uh, sophomore year was journalism and fiction. Uh, Junior year, we divided the year up into four parts. And it was poetry, fiction, stage writing, and screenplays. And then our senior year, we got to choose. We had our anthology course, which we basically wrote a thesis and then studied 
um, again, general literature. Um, and then we got to choose whether we wanted to do journalism as our main track or novel writing. And I chose the latter novel writing. And by graduation, I had half of a finished novel and an outline for the rest of it. Um, so that really set the stage for the structure, the foundation of my craft. Um, I will be honest, the reasons for why I should write these ways and I do write these ways, couldn't tell you, I could not sit here and give you the technical explanation for things. It has long since left my brain, um, but the structure and the foundation was definitely put in place there. And um, I did about two years at university um, as a film student um, before leaving to focus on uh, work and mental health. And I am now returning to university uh, as an English major with a minor in film. Um, and I did freelance writing and copy editing um, from 2020 to when I started at the university I work at now, which um, was at 2021. So I did for about a year and a half, um, as well as alongside my retail gigs. So some self-taught, um, a lot from school and really just practice, just doing it consistently um, was kind of where it was and reading a variety of stuff. I read a lot of classics. I read a lot of nonfiction these days. So um, I know it's a exhausted thing to say these days, but I do think reading a lot does help as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, Stephen King very famously said, if you want to be a better writer, be a better reader. And yes. I don't think you can, um, you can't get around that. Uh, no. If you don't immerse yourself in the voices of other people, you cannot find your own. Um, and that is why that's one of the reasons I think that um, becoming, I think, really good at fan fiction writing, because you are having to find these voices, um, it is it forces you to adapt to another writer's viewpoint. Um, it's a, it's an exercise in mm -hmm. character and an exercise in um, in finding those patterns. Um, but yeah, definitely. Um, but I also do, I can recognize um, the, that you did have a formal basis in your writing because it is, again, it is strong. There's nothing extra there. When I was editing um, for Outlander Cast blog, one of the things I told uh, my writers is I will read your piece out loud. And if there is something that I trip over, I edit it. Mm -hmm. um, it should flow eloquently like music. Um, I will edit anything that I that I stumble over if I'm reading it. And if I feel like I want to skim something, it should go. Like, mm -hmm. don't write, don't write the passages that people want to skim. And um, all of that is it's very tight. Um, the when I read the uh, the fic, when I read A Vulgar Holy Thing, um, I think the final running time is about an hour. Um, not a single word of it is, is superfluous. Like it is all there. It's all crunchy. It's all necessary. And it all, um, yeah, every word has impact. I, I'm just so happy with it. Um, there was absolutely no way that if I was going to do this, I was going to start with any other story than this, because this is the one that made me want to read it out loud. And that like beautiful writing should be read aloud because we started telling stories 
around fires before anything was written down. We started telling them out loud and stories are meant to be told and um, not just read. And I absolutely love it. I, I also get up on a soapbox when people say that audiobooks are not reading. And it's oh, just like, it's so, are. it just, uh, it just gets my back up oh, because gosh. one, it is so dismissive mm-hmm. of um, people who are visually impaired. Absolutely. Um, you know, and it's also dismissive of people who have really busy lives and st- and have gone from being voracious readers in their youth and being able to mm-hmm. sit down and hold a physical book to a situation where you just cannot, but you still want to consume stories. Oh yeah, and absolutely. you know, and yeah, I, it's it's one of the reasons that you know I really wanted to do this because one of the things that um, I struggled with with consuming fan fiction is that I couldn't listen to it. Mm-hmm. I had to literally scroll on my phone and I was just like, I wish there were more because there are some great, um, really great podfix out there already. Jay Novs has yeah, written. Jay. So yeah. um, I have enjoyed all of those, um, but it's difficult. You have to um, go through mm-hmm. and find all those tags and pull them out. It's like there needs to be there needs to be more and it needs to be easier mm-hmm. access. <laughs> yeah, no, so, I fully agree. One of the things that um, that I'm going to ask everybody is, do you have um, a top five of uh, Black Sales fanfics? Mm. Um, so my number one, uh, so these aren't really like in any set order, but um, I think the five that I keep going back to um are probably uh they're actually all series i think or at least they're all two-parters minimum two-parters okay um it's the orange verse um which is i uh i know it technically like completely disregards half the series that's fine we're good it's okay um phenomenal writing phenomenal story phenomenal whole universe i could mm-hmm. live in that universe and i'd be happy it's just stunning um i go back to it when i'm particularly sad and i just need to like feel some serotonin um mm-hmm. it's great um the lightbringer series as far as like a post canon what if uh mm-hmm. i really enjoy that uh, especially because maddie is involved yeah um, it's very much OT4, um, and I loved that whole concept um, of still giving Maddie and Flint a way to wage their war, but still giving Thomas and Silver a chance to have their peace at the same time. Um, I liked that. It was very complex, very fun. Um the rodeo AU, which is a two-parter, um, made up of a hold on you and I walk the line. Um, I I really enjoyed that one. It was an AU that kind of caught me off guard at first. What are you doing? But I I really no. deeply love that two-parter. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know why it initially didn't seem like I wasn't going to like it, but Flint and Silver as bull riders 
with Miranda as Flint's gay best friend Mm -hmm. and Eleanor is their manager. Like it's just phenomenal. It was so good. Um, Flint not, they took the whole Flint dies in Savannah and just made him from Savannah. Yeah. Was darling. Absolutely darling. Um, The set my soul on fire, um, which is the name of the first fic. There is a prequel fic to it, which is, um not everyone's favorite i enjoyed it um i i like both parts but it's basically oceans 11 but with black sails mm-hmm. um and i am a, a deep devotee of the oceans franchise it's one of my favorite feel-good series and so the fact that that exists and i can keep going back to it and just enjoying it so much um makes me deeply happy um, and then the last one is the Butterscotch series. Yes. <laughs> um, phenomenal. Untouchable. I I waited for updates. I think that was the only series that I read as it was being updated. Because mm-hmm. I didn't realize it was going to be that. Um, and then it was, I didn't realize it was going to go in that angle. I didn't, I didn't, I was not prepared. And then it became such a glorious story oh my gosh Um, my one of my best friends maybe got through four episodes of black sales before she got distracted she still believes to finish it don't know when it'll happen she read the entire thing because she was one of uh, her minor was in um deaf studies and she's sign language and she read the entire thing solely because of that aspect of the story um because she loved that so much because there's not enough regular fiction that features that but that aspect of the Butterscotch series was so fantastic that she's like, I'm reading it as if it's just regular fiction. And I'm in love with these Black Sails characters. And I'm going to watch Black Sails and go, why aren't they signing to each other? Why, why yeah. aren't... <laughs> she's like, that's why one reason I'm not watching it yet, because I'm going to have to watch it and go, why aren't they signing? So uh, the Butterscotch series by Robot Boy, just, I just phenomenal. Oh yeah, Um, absolutely. Um, Yeah, I'm gonna double down on butterscotch too because um, just uh, taking yeah, quality. It's it's so beautiful and and I okay. So I am a barista and um, I can't tell you how many times a day the line you know for my excellent frothing skills pops into my head. Like it is so good. And one of the things um, that is a true test of the quality of a certain fan fiction piece Mm -hmm. is if you can take it and um, view it as someone unfamiliar with the characters and still get invested in it. Um, Because because there are people who fall back on knowledge of the source material to inform the story. And Mm -hmm. while it certainly helps, you can't let that be the um the foundation of the story it's got to be built into your piece and Mm -hmm. all of those stories orange verse everything they just they bring that in so well and i think one of the reasons that i chose vulgar holy thing to be the first one is that that is a piece that also you can read as a standalone story fully get invested in the characters because you have that backstory that exposition that is 
gently brought into the story, not thwacked on your forehead. <laughs> you know, um, you. exposition is something that's really, really hard to do naturally. And it this is. sits so beautifully in it. And you can you can come at that story and think, oh, my gosh, and be so affected by it. And hopefully watch black sales. Um, <laughs> you know, the end goal. It's like you've got it, guys. It's the it's the the prostylization of black sales. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Well, oh my you. gosh! I always I always worry the exposition's heavy, so I always edit it carefully and then send it out like, oh, please be too, please be okay, please be light enough. So thank you. Yeah, well, and always feels good to hear. And one of the things I love about your dialogue, and it it's not like they they aren't constantly readdressing each other. And that's one of the things that you find in amateur writing all the time is they're just like, oh, James, what are you? Silver. What are you? Flint. What are you? Like, it's just we don't talk to each other that way. Yeah. Um, we I know who you are. You know who I am. I don't have to constantly yeah. remind you of your name. Um, but like that's all of it, like everything I could use that story as a textbook for how to write a beautiful short story that is really emotionally impactful and just has a beautiful circular type feeling where it, it begins with the sounds of the creaking ship and it ends with the sounds of the creaking ship lulling them to sleep. It's amazing. It's amazing. I, I'm, I'm geeking out so hard. I'm so sorry. Like, it's just, no, it's, no, it's really nice. I am so not going to get over it. Are you planning at all to revisit it at any time? Um, so I am now that I am working more regularly at writing again, um, cause my health has been a little shaky this past year. So writing has kind of been stop and go. Um, but I have been working at my writing again, um, over the past couple of months. So there is a chapter two. It is very bare bones, a very, very rough, messy draft right now that needs a lot of love before it sees the actual light of day. With how vulnerable Silver was left, despite how circular it all very was, and it was, and I wanted it to be because as it stands it is very complete and collected almost like in a bubble um like a ship in a bottle i did still want there to be the possibility of silver being able to be carried back out of that fragile state um mm -hmm. the next morning so to speak um because he's allowed himself into that fragile state he's allowed himself to be vulnerable and then of course there's going to be that moment where he wakes up and goes mm, maybe that was a mistake um as those who aren't good at vulnerability are wont to do and then of course that puts then the pressure on flint whereas the night before the focus was very much on silver's ability to be vulnerable this now then puts the focus on flint and hey can you carry the weight a while um and so i did very much want to have that challenge for flint in a way and so I do think I will revisit it. Um, I definitely cannot speak to how, who, what, when, and where, um, but I'm picking away at it because it hasn't left my head or my heart. So oh, it feels wrong. Well, definitely feels wrong to leave it in the state it is. 
I, whatever you do get around to uh, <laughs> publishing it, I will just eat it up. I'm so excited to hear that. In terms of that story, it is such a perfect kind of like capsule. You know, it, it could work if you just left it alone and just let it sit. But it, the way that it ends, the beautiful place that silver is emotionally when it ends like you you want to know what happens after and that conversation that they have where he says um then in the morning we'll sit down like sensible men like sensible men that was my and, favorite uh, thing to have them say um I really that came to me kind of on a whim and then I I just held that so much the like sensible men because there's nothing sensible about it I loved it so deeply it was like an inside joke for them Uh, and (laughs) and it also kind of made me think about because it's the the sweet side of that Mm -hmm. but then it also made me think of uh Rackham when he's having the conversation (laughs) with the other pirate captain of the Goliath where he says reasonable men agree yes (laughs) and it's and you know that it's an absolute lie it's an absolute trick but here um you know that there is there is a yeah they're actually connecting and it's just yeah I I had a chuckle thinking about the parallel of those lines and it's beautiful and I love that sit down and talk like sensible men yeah and I think with that with that and the morning and I think because so much of this fic one of the things I loved was how atmospheric it is Mm -hmm. spoken to that and the the creaking of the ship and the light of the port and the distant voices one of the things I loved about this was really getting to lean into how sensory the world of black sails is um and I've been on boats I've been on tall ships a few times I've not gotten to be on a tall ship at dawn but I did get to stay on a houseboat for a little while and experience what sunrise was like on a houseboat um you know through the little window into the bedroom and just the creaking of the the hall and the wooden room and the the gentle rocking as you're there just sort of piecing your your mind back together your identity back together as the sun rises and so there is part of me that wants to continue that very special liminal space that the ocean gives you both Mm -hmm. at night and at sunrise um that i think this world of black sails really gets to exist in because they're almost always at sea yeah and that's one of the things that yeah it is that the whole story is very um atmospheric and you you can hear it like you you are so fully immersed in it you can hear those sounds um and that's one of the things yeah black sales as a series did so well i mean the only god it's a travesty the only emmy nomination they ever got was mm-hmm. for sound design and the episode i think that they got nominated for was um 208 yes i think you're right and um was it two eight no it was 209 it was 209 because I remember watching the conversation, the Mr. Flint conversation mm-hmm. between between James and Miranda and the cicadas. It feels like you're in the room with them. Mm. It absolutely is astonishing, the sound design. 
Everything else is astonishing about that show too, yes. and should have swept the Emmys. But Absolutely. but I I will say that that I mean that nomination was very very well deserved. Mm, absolutely. Um, do you have any advice uh, to give fanfic writers who are looking to break into the Black Sails universe? Um, specifically for the Black Sails universe, I would say don't be intimidated by the time period um, because I know I've seen writers admit to being intimidated by the tall ships and the piracy and the politics and the cannons and the guns and the clothes and the the trade and I don't do I have to do all of the research for all of this just because black sales got all of the details right does not mean your fic has to have all of the details right mm-hmm. uh, more power to you and more respect to you if you do the research but it's okay if you don't if you don't have all the answers um sometimes it's okay to not have the answers and your readers will just play make-believe but also, that's why AUs exist. You can always just play in the costume box with the dolls, which are your characters. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's really, really where the fun comes into play. And I think that's the next bit of advice is get messy and make mistakes. Uh, it's the old Miss Frizzle standby is get messy, make mistakes, be adventurous. Um, in fandom, it's very easy to worry about what other parts of the fandom will like and won't like. And mm-hmm. will the readers want this will this be in character does this sound like the right part of their voice and you know is this too tropey is this not tropey enough is this self-satisfying at the end of the day it doesn't matter like Mm -hmm. write what feels authentic yeah when you get the chance if you end up just sending it to a friend you just send it to a friend but you wrote it it's writing it's practice and the more time you spend with these characters in the world of the show, the better that your writing for Black Sails is going to get. Um, because I'm sure that's how the showrunners had to do it, is they had to spend time with the characters. The actors had to spend time living with these characters for very long periods to just become them, in a sense. It's not method yeah. acting so much as just understanding them. The writers had to understand them. And we, as fanfic writers, have to understand them. Um, you know, you have to get comfortable with the discomfort of things, maybe not feeling quite the way you wanted it to be, and then you edit it. Drafts are a thing. Yeah. Um, don't take yourself or the writing too too seriously. It's yeah. supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be fun. Agreed. Yeah, and I agree in terms of um not feeling tied to the canon. Um, in terms of setting, mm-hmm. some of the some of the best AUs, I read them and I'm like, this person is writing about their field. Like, I absolutely know. Um, Now, someone is probably going to shock me and say, I had no idea about making cupcakes. I'm calling out Jane Oz because I, oh my God, (laughs) the the cupcake, the cupcake AU, uh, Shout out to Jay and, and I, the cupcake. And I AU. cannot, oh my gosh, I cannot listen to Taylor Swift now without thinking of that. <laughs> and I have two, and I'm I have two little. I'm genuinely grateful for it, honestly, because I'm not a huge <laughs> Taylor Swift fan, 
So now when Taylor Swift comes on, I actually think of Jay and it's actually a positive for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I have two little boys who are both Swifties and nice. my, um, my youngest who is going to be turning five, um, in about three weeks. Um, when he was a baby, we were living in Japan. And one of the things that, um, comforted him in the mornings if I, I'm trying to get my old, right. my older son up and ready for school, and he, you can probably hear him mm-hmm. in the background, <laughs> um, but I would put on the um, you need to calm down video <laughs> and he was just mesmerized. But um, so every time now, because they demand mm-hmm. Taylor Swift all the time, it makes me think of oh. the cupcake AU and I absolutely adore that. But <laughs> the I power of good fanfic. <laughs> yes. And so I um I I absolutely feel like so many of these are set in um fields where the, the writers are well versed. Um mm-hmm. uh let's see, Primal Scream also has yes. a lot of AUs that are very joy, very specific. Yes. to their field and mm-hmm. i'm just like man Primal i screams they use are phenomenal those are so good. yeah the the oh my gosh the one where i i'm forgetting the title uh where uh silver is a chef and flint takes yes yes takes his cooking so, classes Yes, yes takes no, that one classes. Is one of my favorites. i me too and because i went to culinary school and i read that and i'm like this is really good. Like mm-hmm. this is really well researched. If Primal Scream is not, um, it does not have a culinary background. I will eat my shoe. But like it just, it's so good. Like these are, yeah, yeah just yeah. Don't be bound by canon. Don't be afraid to write what you know. Put it in the world where you sit. Because you if first. I love it, love it. So much fun. Oh my gosh. Well, this has been so much fun. I've really, really loved talking to you. And um, this makes me really excited to go forward with this series and and just talk to so many other writers because um, I was a little nervous uh, because I haven't done like interviews and things like that. But like, yeah, you get something where, you know, you're both passionate about the same thing and like just instant conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for sticking with me through all of the months that I was trying (laughs) to make this work and um, for letting me letting me um, play with your baby for a little bit, Um, because I just I love it, love it, love it. And um, it's everything that I wanted to do. Um, and I think, I think this is going to be a great episode when it comes out. I'm, I'm so deeply excited. I just really thank you for honoring me with this being the first in the series. I've, I've never been in this position before and had my work be recognized like this. I'm deeply honored. Um, I said before black sales is my home away from home as far as my work as a writer and my place in fandom. And this is just another example of how much I love my role as a writer here. Um, it makes me want to keep writing every day. So thank you. I'm honored to have been able to do an interview with you. And I'm so <laughs> excited for this series and for the other pieces that you decide to feature. I'm really, really excited.
Thank you so much, James. It has been a delight. Thank you to Magic Bubble Pipe, who drew the stunning sketch of Flint and Silver dancing, which is featured online for today's story. You can find him on Tumblr and on Patreon at Magic Bubble Pipe. He does stunning work and takes commissions, so definitely check it out. And thank you for anyone out there who decided to tune in, either because you're my friend and I made you listen, or because we are unknown kindred spirits and that Black Sails brain rot got you as well. I'm going to try and put out episodes monthly to get started, but I do have to say, this is a lot of work to produce. I don't have a quiet household, and my day job managing a cafe keeps me pretty busy. When I tell you that I've got a basement studio, what I mean is... I'm tucked into an alcove underneath the basement stairs. So what I'm saying is I'm really going to try to put out episodes on a regular basis. If you are a fanfic author and have a favorite story you'd love to hear and want to join me on the podcast, please reach out to me on Twitter at Kendra Spring or at AudioficPod, or you can send an email to ReadingBetweenTheLinesPod at gmail.com. If you're not an author, but you've got a favorite fic you'd like me to read, all suggestions are welcome. Please reach out. Thanks again for listening. This has been Reading Between the Lines, a fanfic audio podcast. And I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.